So open up your Bibles again to Romans chapter 2. We actually finished up chapter 2 the last time we gathered together. So we will actually be uh, going through chapter 3 this morning. But I just would like for us to go ahead and start out this morning by um, beginning to read in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. And then from there, we'll go right on into chapter 3. So in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Jews here at this portion of his letter. And he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, foolish a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly in circumcision, is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So we talked about all those verses the last time we gathered, but I just want to stay within the context here. Then verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So, as Paul is speaking here in this letter, we have seen in chapters 1 and 2 that he has addressed both the, the worldly non-believer and the self-righteous religious person that portrays one thing and yet does another. And in verse 1 here of chapter 3, he brings up one of a, a few rhetorical questions that he will ask in this letter. You see, Paul is not denying that God indeed did choose this group of people, the Jews, as his elect. God had a purpose in working out his will on this earth, and that purpose and that plan came through the Jewish people. Of course, we know that God's ultimate plan was to bring the Messiah through them, 
the Savior of all the world, the one through whom all the world, both Jew and Gentile, must come to faith in order to be saved, right? And that was Jesus Christ. God's plan was to bring the Messiah through this people. But, but again, Paul is saying here, what advantage did the Jews have? And then he says, much in every way. So he asks this question here, and he does give a partial answer to the question, which I guess would make it not completely a rhetorical question, as I said. But later on in this letter, he's going to give even more of an answer to what advantage has the Jew to that question. Let's go ahead and mark this page and turn up in your Bibles here to Romans chapter 6. So staying right here in this letter to the Romans, uh, Romans chapter 9 actually. Romans chapter 9 and starting in verse 1, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now let's just pause briefly right there because Paul is speaking of the Israelites here, the Jews, right? His brethren. He was a Jew himself, okay? And we, considering Paul's question and answer back in chapter 3, right, when we consider that again, what advantage has the Jew, and he says much in every way, he goes on here in chapter 9 to give an even uh, more detailed answer to the advantages that the Jews had, right? He says, he says, to whom pertain the adoption, Right? Now that word adoption there is a Greek word that means sonship or a son. Right In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord pronounced that the people of Israel were his son, his firstborn. Okay? So the adoption pertains to this group of people. God proclaimed that this was his people. Right. Next on the list there we see the word the glory. And this pertains to that visible manifestation of God that we also saw when we studied the book of Exodus, right? On more than one occasion, the the visible manifestation of God was the glory. And who saw that? What group of people saw that? The Jews, the Israelites, okay? Then Paul goes on to bring up the covenants here, which includes the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis, if you remember back when we studied that. And then he had a covenant with Moses in Exodus. He had a covenant of land that he made with the Israelites, their promised land. He had a covenant that he made with King David in 2 Samuel. And of course, there's the new covenant that we're under today through faith in Jesus Christ. And even that covenant went first to the Jew. It was to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So that's another advantage that the Jews had, right? The covenants came through them. Then Paul goes on to mention other things here, like the giving of the law, which we studied about in Exodus, 
the service of God, which is talking about the service in the temple. Remember when they set up the temple in Exodus, there was the service of the temple, the way things were to be done in there. And he says, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So what advantage did the Jew have, like Paul said in Romans chapter 3? Much in every way. But I just wanted to give you a glimpse here of how Paul asked a question back there in chapter 3, and he gives a brief answer, but later on he gives a more detailed answer. You see, a lot of people in Paul's writing, uh, the way Paul writes when people study the letters of Paul, They say, well, he goes on a rabbit trail a lot, and he seems to be jumping around all over the place. Well, in a sense he does, but in a sense that's kind of unfair. You really have to realize that these letters were written to be read in one sitting. You know, we gather like we gather, and we just read a chapter here, a chapter there, a chapter there, right? But when the letter was written, it was to be read all the way through. So... When he mentions something in chapter 3, and you fast forward on into chapter 9 like we did, he kind of answers the question. And he does that a few different times here in Romans. So just keep that in mind. If you ever get the opportunity, I try to do it once a year with Romans. I try to do it with Hebrews and with Acts as well. But that is just to sit down and read it all the way through at one one sitting. and then you'll, you'll see the flow of it much better. It all makes much more sense. As I teach it like this and we break it up, it's a bit difficult to try and get the, the full sense of it, but I do my best with, it, with you guys. But with all that the Jews have, okay, here in this letter, though, let's keep in mind what Paul's trying to explain to them, that even with all they have, even with what advantages they have, how God worked through them and God did all of this through them, They still needed the gospel. And that's the point that Paul's making in this letter, is that they are not exempt to needing to hear the gospel in order to be saved. No one is exempt from the necessity of the gospel. If you remember, I told you the last time we gathered that that is what this section of Romans is now about that we're reading, that we're studying, the necessity of the gospel. The Jews, just like everyone else, must come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because Galatians 3.28 tells us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So everyone must come to Jesus. There's no distinctions of people. We as a people on this earth tend to separate ourselves based on many different things. But in Christ, we become one. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're Jew, Greek, whatever you are, male, female, whatever you are, everyone must come to Christ. Okay? So go ahead now and turn back to uh, Romans chapter 3. Now you see when it came to the message of the Old Testament, as well as the message of the New Testament, not all Jews believed it. Just like not all people today 
will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept it. Not everyone will, okay? And Paul continues in verse 3 here of Romans chapter 3. He says, for what if some did not believe? Remember, he said, you know, what, what profit has the Jews much in every way, chiefly because to them were given the oracles of God, the word of God. He, so that's one point he's making here. And he says, but what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So again, in verse 2, Paul says that the Jews of the circumcision were given that the word of God, the oracles of God. But he is pointing out to them that just because some don't believe that word of God, it doesn't make it any less the truth, right? And a question we can ask ourselves here this morning is, does unbelief make the truth a lie? Does unbelief make the truth a lie? And the obvious answer to that question from the scriptures is no. One's unbelief or opinion in regard to a fact has no effect on the validity of that fact. Let me repeat that, right? One's belief or opinion in regard to a fact has no effect on the validity of that fact. Let God be true and every man a liar simply means because God said it, that settles it. It is. Our faith in Jesus the Messiah today is founded upon the oracles of God, the words that God has spoken through his prophets and through his apostles, right? We have the writing of the apostles today in the New Testament. That's what we're reading right now the Apostle Paul's letter, okay? And God has established this as his word, the truth, okay? The words that we have in the pages of our Bibles here. As people of faith, that's how we are to approach the word of God with faith, right? We stand upon it. No matter what, we stand firmly upon the word of God. If all the world full of people were to agree on one thing, but that one thing that they agree upon is contrary to God's word, then God is true. And every other person on the face of the earth is a liar. It doesn't matter how many people get together and proclaim something. If God's word says something different, we stand upon God's word, and God's word is truth. And that's what we see there at the end of verse 4 where it says that you, do you see if you're reading the New King James Version of the Bible there, that Y on the, the word you there is a capital Y, okay? It's speaking of God here when it says that you may be justified in your words, capital Y, and may overcome when you are judged, now, you may say, well, who would judge God? Well, no one would rightly judge God, but people do judge God. People today do judge God. Mankind will say things like, well, if God is so good, then why this? 
or why that? And they fill in the blanks, right? Well, if God is such a good God, well then why this or, or why that, right? And all of the answers to, the, to, the, to those questions are found in the fact that God is true and his word is true and will not change. But people don't want to approach the word of God. People don't want to learn the word of God and study the word of God to know the will of God, to know the heart of God. So they just condemn God and, and judge God. Right, based on their opinions, okay? The people of the governments today, right? Can, they can redefine all they want, like they recently do, right? They redefine certain things, right? Redefine marriage, for example. But let God be true and every man a liar. It's the truth of God's word that we stand upon, not what people get together and vote on or not what governments change or what laws they make. What is written in the word of God is what is truth and we are not to, to waver from it. And Paul continues here in Romans chapter 3 again to contain, um, explain the necessity of the gospel for both the Jews and Gentiles. In other words, for everyone, for all the world. And in verse 5, he says, But if our righteousness, excuse me, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, Let us do evil that that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So what we see here in those last five verses is the mentality that says, hey, if my sinful behavior demonstrates that I'm not good, and God is good, then God has inflicted something on me so that I will see that God is good. And if God has automatically inflicted upon me to be unrighteous as a result of just being born, then God himself has done something unjust. Because if I'm born a sinner, how could I help it? So God has done something unjust. That's what Paul's pointing out here, that person that says that, that type of mentality, right? It's, it's that person that says, why did God make us this, this way, right? Why did he let us just turn out to be sinners, right? Is it just so that he could look good compared to us? If so, then that would be an unjust God, right? And furthermore, this mentality goes on to say, like Paul points out here as well, hey, well then, let's just sin all the more because the more we sin, the more God looks good and then he can show his goodness toward us. And that, that, that mentality is prevalent today in churches, right? And in religions today, the mentality of your willful, habitual sin doesn't matter because God's grace is so good. So people just say, my sin doesn't matter because God's grace is good. God is good to me. 
His grace is there every day for me. So I can just keep sinning. I can just keep sinning, right? And that exists today as well. But as you study the Word of God, as you rightfully divide the Word of truth, as you study the Bible, you find, no, 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 that's not true. That's not how we're supposed to live, okay? But this is not the way, again, this is not the way we are supposed to live. Paul will discuss more on that topic later in this letter again. Again, it's kind of hard for us to sit here and break this letter up from us because Paul's going, he's bringing up some things here early in this letter that he's going to address later in this letter, right? But um, we must keep in mind as we read Romans that Paul is talking about a group of people here that are very self-righteous. They're, they're religious people. And they didn't, they didn't believe they needed the gospel. They believed just because of their birth, they were, just, they were born a Jew. And God gave us all this. Look what God gave us. Look how he worked, how he pulled us out of slavery in Egypt. Look how he worked in that mighty way, performed all those miracles. Look what he did. I'm born a Jew. I don't need the gospel. I'm automatically one of God's people. I'm one of God's chosen people. And that's who Paul's dealing with here. And he's trying to get them to see, no, you need the gospel. We all need the gospel. But it's not just the Jews. There are people today, and I don't, I'm not going to pick on any one religion, but you can just fill in the blank. I'm born, I was born a Catholic. I was born a Baptist. I was born a whatever, and that's what I'm going to be, and that's going to get me into heaven, and that's why I'm saved, because I was that, my mom was that, and I refuse to believe that my mom wasn't saved, right? And she died one of those, so I'm not going to change, because I refuse to believe that she wasn't saved. But the truth is, is we all need the gospel. We have to come to faith in Jesus Christ, okay? So let's, um, he continues in verse 10. As it is written, there is how many righteous? None. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So uh, he, he, makes a, he makes a very uh, strong point here, doesn't he? How many are righteous? None. How many do good? None. How many seek after God? None, right? So the self-righteous of this world, those that think that they can just do it on their own, their good outweighs their bad, or they have their religion. Yeah, they, they haven't murdered anyone. They haven't broken any serious laws. They've remained faithful to their spouse. They feed and clothe their children. Surely this counts for something with God, right? Surely they must be saved just because they're good in that way, right? No, God, God's word proclaims that there are none that are righteous. No, not one. Because look what, it's, look what we have to be compared to. A holy, righteous, all-powerful God. We all fall short, right? There's none that seeks after God, right? It says there in verse 11. But, but when you think about that, you say, well, what about the, the monks and, right, and all those 
people that dedicate their lives? And what about the priest and, you know, and, and all that, the Pope and other religious figures around the world? Aren't they automatically just righteous seekers of God, automatically saved because of the works they do? No, there's none that are righteous, none that seek after God, because God says in his word that there are none righteous. Let God be true and every man a liar. The message of the gospel, everyone needs. And the message of the gospel is that we are saved not by our own works, but rather we're saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're not saved because we can make ourselves righteous and holy and do good. We're saved because of what Jesus has done. And we need to come to Jesus and place our faith in Him. And then after we do, we continue to walk by faith, having crucified the flesh and all of its desires and desire just to seek after Jesus daily and and to live for Him. Right? Paul continues to speak of uh, sinful mankind here in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. So have any of us here this morning practiced deceit with our tongues at any time in our lives? Sure we have, right? All have sinned. And all need a Savior. Again, this is the message of the gospel. Keep in mind what we're reading, the necessity for the gospel, why we need it, why you need it, why I need it, why why everyone on the face of the earth needs it. Okay, Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that is the proclamation again of God's word here in regards to the state of mankind. The overall state of mankind. A bunch of foul-mouthed, bitter, violent liars that have no peace apart from God. Okay, And the only answer for this problem is Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So, you see, the law of the Old Testament, that was its purpose, to display and to make it clear that all are sinners because not one person was able to keep the whole law. So the law makes it clear that we are sinners, right? So Paul says there in verse 19, shut your mouth and admit you're guilty and that you need a Savior. That's my translation of what he says there. Shut your mouth, admit you're guilty, and you need a Savior. Okay, There's no righteousness in and of ourselves. I cannot proclaim that. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So again, if not for the law, we wouldn't know that we were sinners. Again, I I always break it down real simple here. 
But if you drive down the street, you're going 55, and you see that black and white sign on the side that says 45, you're breaking the law. And that, that sign lets you know that. That sign is a legal sign. It's part of the law. You can't go tear it down. It's letting you know you're breaking the law right now, going 55 in this 45. Well, that was the purpose of the law that God gave in regards to sin, in regards to how we should live. It, it, it makes us see and allows us to see, I'm breaking it. I'm breaking the law. What do I do? I'm falling short of the glory of God. I'm, I'm a sinner. What do I need? I need a Savior. The necessity of the gospel, right? Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, so it's saying the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed and that it was revealed by and witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, the law pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament. The prophets pointed to the coming of the Messiah, pointed to Jesus. And verse 22 tells us, even the righteousness of God, so the righteousness of God was revealed. How? How's the righteousness of God revealed in our lives? Through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. That's the only way to become righteous, to become right in the sight of God, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what the Word of God says. So what about the people out there will say, well, I believe in so-and-so, or I'm of such-and-such such faith, and I believe in so-and-so. But the Word of God says, no, it's Jesus only. That's the only way to be saved, is Jesus only. So what do we say? We say, let God be true, and every man a liar. What God says is true, right? There's all kinds of religions, all kinds of People that have stepped forward and said, you know, this is what I heard from God, and people follow them. And they become big religions. Some have become big religions named after just certain men. Big followings, right? But let God be true, and every man a liar. This is the word of God. Let's read on. For there is no difference, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God okay so this is part right here and I've kind of harped on this point this morning but this is the part of the gospel that every human being on the face of this earth must have a knowledge of all have sinned all have fallen short short of what short of the glory of God like I mentioned earlier that's the standard can any one of us say today that we live up to the glory of God, right? Can any one of us, based on our own merits, stand in the presence of the glory of God? Of course we cannot, right? The God, remember the mountain in Exodus 
and God was, the glory of God was appearing above that mountain while speaking to Moses, if anyone so much as touched that mountain, they would die. We cannot stand in the presence of God, in the power of God, right? In the glory of God, okay? And the God of all creation, the God we read of in the Bible, he made all that we have, the land that we walk upon, the food that we eat, the air that we breathe. It all came from God, and he is all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty, everlasting. And you and I just fall miserably short of it. So we need a Savior. We need to be redeemed. And verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation just means substitute. So who God set forth as a substitute for you, a substitute for me. He would shed His blood. Okay? We didn't have to shed our blood for the remission of our sins. He shed His blood. Right? And our blood wouldn't be any good anyway because we're sinners. But He wasn't. Right? right? So by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. In other words, God is just overlooking it. Overlooking the sin. And saying, because of the blood of Jesus, this is God's grace. Because of the blood of Jesus, you will be forgiven. That's the grace of God. And how do we receive that? How do we come to that place? We come there by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See that? It's through faith in Jesus that we are justified. Okay? I'll just go over those verses again. First of all, in verse 24, we see that God's Word says that we are justified freely by His grace. Again, not one work of our own. Doesn't matter, Mr. Jew, who Paul's talking to here, right? Doesn't matter who you were born, how you were born, what you were born into. It doesn't matter, Mr. or Mrs. Catholic, Mr. or Mrs. Baptist, Mr. or Mrs. Presbyterian, whoever you are. It doesn't matter how you were born. You fall short, and you need a Savior. There's only one way for you to be justified. It's not your religion. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. If you go to church on Sunday, good for you, but it doesn't justify you. If you go to church on Saturday, good for you, it doesn't justify you. If you go to men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, Christian concerts, you feed the poor, you help the widows, you still fall short of the glory of God when it comes to being justified in His sight and you need a Savior. And you needed the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He had to be the propitiation. He had to be the substitute, right? So God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. So every sin that you have committed, Jesus paid the price for, right? Every sin that everyone has committed has been taken care of by the precious blood of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get into this teaching today, but again, we have to read the whole Bible 
We can't just pull out certain parts and say, oh, okay, so every sin I commit is under the blood of Jesus. I'll sin tomorrow. That's under the blood of Jesus. I'll make a choice and sin next week, and that will be under the blood of Jesus. No. You've got to read the whole counsel of the Word of God. You've got to read that, that there is a way you have to walk, that, that you have to turn, turn away from willful sin. Willful sin. Okay? We all fall short. We all might slip up or trip up or make a mistake, but we, we have the opportunity to repent of that and to say, I made this mistake. God, I'm sorry. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who we can turn to and say, I'm sorry. But if we're truly sorry, what do we do? We repent, meaning we don't keep doing it if we're truly sorry. The person that does something to you and says, sorry, and then does it the next day to you and says, sorry, and then does it the next day to you and says, sorry, you, you got to realize, no, you're not sorry. You're not really sorrowful here, right? Because godly sorrow, the Bible says that true godly sorrow leads to repentance, okay? Let's turn to John chapter 14 for a moment, okay? Two books back to the left of where we are here. John chapter 14. Not too many pages back from where we are. So again, the gift of salvation is for the whole world to receive. But in order to receive that salvation, one must come to faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, stop right there because that is the prerequisite. Before we can be a part of what Jesus is about to say next, we must believe in him. And I've talked about that word believe there in the past. In the Greek, it's the word pisteiu, right? And it means to be convicted, convinced, to have totally entrusted your life into the hands of Jesus. That word, to believe, it's not like the fairy tales that we see today, right? We, have, we live in a time of Disney, right? Where, oh, believe, and oh, just believe in this and believe in that, and do you believe in this and believe in that? And that word believe has been cheapened. But this word believe is not a cheap word. This word believe is a word that says you're fully committed. You've completely entrusted all that you are, every part of your being to Jesus Christ, Okay? That's what it takes to have part in what Jesus says here in verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, who is Jesus going to prepare a place for here? He's going to prepare a place for those that believe in him. Those that completely place their lives in his hand, commit their hearts completely to him. And he says in verse 3, And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So how awesome is that? Where is Jesus right now? 
He's in heaven, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, that's where He has prepared a place for us. Corinthians says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. Right? God has something prepared for us there. And as Jesus was talking to his disciples here, he continues on in verse 4 and says, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. In other words, you know how to get there. The way there, you know. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we see being pointed out. That's what Paul wrote about. That's what Jesus talked about. Through faith in Jesus Christ. As we turn back to Romans chapter 3, the gospel message that we're seeing here is telling us that it's all because of Jesus that we are saved. And we have not been um, offered this salvation as a result of our own works. That's what he's pointing out to these Jewish people that thought just because they were born a Jew, we've got all these advantages. Paul's not denying those those advantages. Paul's not denying that this did come through the Jews, but he's saying it doesn't matter. You need the gospel. You need Jesus Christ, right? Verse 27 continues, where is boasting then? In other words, what does it matter that you're a Jew? What what does it matter what religion you were born into? What family you were born into? Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. So not because of the works you do, but by faith. That's why boasting is excluded. You, you, You can't have it, right? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law? Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So faith in Jesus and not the works of the law brings salvation, but the law hasn't been made of no value, right? The law is still good. The law is still perfect. The commands of the law that we see in the Old Testament, they're all still good. We should still live by them, right? We should keep the commandments and all that but it's faith in Jesus Christ that justifies us, not the works of the law, okay? Turn to Psalm chapter 19. You'll find the book of Psalms somewhere in the middle of your Bible there. I want you to find Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 
And I'm going to start reading in verse 7, Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So you see, everything that is of God is perfect and good. The problem was never the law. The problem was and is that mankind falls short of the glory of God. And the law proves that to us and shows that to us. We can't keep it. But the law is still good, right? There is none good, though no, not one. We can't live up to it. Let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 7, toward the back of your Bible, between Philemon and James. Philemon's a very small book, but if you hit James, you went too far. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, so again, Paul's pointing out the law is good. We're not. We need a Savior. And here I want to just show you something else in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Hebrews 7, 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So it's kind of ironic to me that Psalm 19 says where we read there says that the law is perfect and in Hebrews 7 9 says that the law made nothing perfect right but here again right the law is perfect but it didn't make anything perfect because we fall short and here in verse 19 of Hebrews 7 it tells us that there is a better hope through which we draw near to God and that better hope is the grace of God and that he offers salvation to all the world through faith in Jesus Christ, like we read about earlier, right? His blood has made us perfect in God's sight. We come to this place of salvation only by faith and only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is God's plan for mankind, and there is no other way. The gospel begs the question, have you surrendered your life completely to Jesus today? Or do you think that your good works are enough? Do you think, oh, I'm okay. My good works are enough. I, I've done enough good. I've done good, right? Paul is talking here to a people that had something to boast about. They really did. They had something to boast about, and that was their law, their religion, something that, that God did in their lives. They thought they were born and, and raised already saved. 
but no religion will save you. Jesus said that you must be born again. And the gospel brings the truth of why and how to be saved. Right? It's to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And have you come to that place, that place where you've fully surrendered and submitted your life completely to Jesus Christ? This is why we gather like this, to exhort one another to this type of thing, to say, go, you got a new week now, we got a new day, seek the Lord. Desire to take every aspect of your life and put it under His Lordship. Everything you do, every breath you take, Put it under his lordship and, and seek him with all your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, again, we thank you for your word. Your word is good, God. Your word does within our hearts and minds and our souls, Lord, that, that, that which nothing else can. Lord, your word is never in question. Lord, as we look at the world around us, it's, it's just continually waxing worse and worse and turning from your word and turning to just that which man and women desires, Lord, the, the desires of our flesh and our own minds and our own lust and things like that, Lord. But there are a people that are separated unto you, Lord, and the question is, is are we one of them? Have we turned our lives completely to you, God? God, I pray that your word would not be forgotten today, Lord, that we would not just be forgetful hearers of, of what we've read and what we've studied, Lord, but that we would go out and actually live it, that we would be doers of the work of your word, Lord. Let your will be done, God, in our hearts and minds, Lord, I pray for all those listening to this teaching, Lord, wherever in the world they are, God, that they would surrender to you, God, that they would begin to seek you, and that your will would be done, Lord, fully in all of our hearts. Again, we just acknowledge you in this day that you are Lord of all. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.